Coming up on Tech Nation, what's happening to our cities with all this tech? From smartphones to wireless networking to ride-sharing services to private busing, which enables highly paid tech employees to live in the city of their choice. What's happened in San Francisco may already be coming to your city or a city near you. Then on Tech Nation Health, a potential first-ever treatment for Proteus Syndrome, most familiar to you from the movie The Elephant Man. It turns out it may also help in the treatment of endometrial cancer. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Wheels. San Francisco is awash in wheels. It's not just cars as in Uber or Lyft or buses or even delivery trucks. It's all these other wheels. All over the city, there are bike stands with 10 to 20 bikes all lined up, ready for you to check out with your smartphone app and leave it at a bike stand elsewhere. On brilliant sunny days, these stands are empty, but mostly there are always some there for the taking, or they may even be full. And if you look more closely, you'll realize that some are electric, giving you a much-needed boost up these famous hills or for long distances. Helpful is that the city is spider-webbed with green bike lanes and large arrows telling riders where to go next. And there are plenty of other brand electric bikes. One company is Scoots, whose motto is electric vehicles for everyone. The future of mobility is shared. Scoots features two types of vehicles at this point, electric motor scooters, complete with helmet, and kick scooters, which are not unlike the scooters kids in kindergarten love. Only these are adult size. They're motorized, and wherever you find one, untended on the sidewalk, it's available through your app. Did I mention the unicycles? Not the old-fashioned kind with a seat and pedals. These are motorized, and it's just a wheel with two pedals to stand on. The pedals can be positioned in front and back of the wheel or on either side. These, however, appear to be privately owned. But when you're in your car and someone appears to be zipping fast alongside you or even past you and their legs aren't moving, they're on a unicycle. But the point is, there are wheels everywhere, and they're there for the taking. If you want to get from one place to the next, you figure out what wheels will work for you. What you don't do is look for a bus stop and figure out the route and the schedule, and if you have to transfer and then walk some more with your purchases and your laptop and whatever, hey, humans want to go from one place to another right now, the speediest and most convenient way they can. Pushing old technology because it's the right thing to do, or we've invested in the infrastructure, or how else are we going to do it? Well, that's the question of the moment. How are we going to do it?
Let's be clear. Despite the human proclivity to want to get there fast, humans can still be mischievous. That's a good word, mischievous. The scooter companies, in addition to scoot, are lime and bird and spin and skip, and I'm sure I've left someone out. But let's get back to mischievous. Having found a bunch of lime scooters on the street, some miscreants, another good word, lined up ten of them all in a row. Then they took another lime, whipped out their app, and rode it directly into the scooter scrum. They call it lime bowling. Such delights might have limited appeal when you realize your app knows it's you, and the time and the place and the technology does have a way of catching up with you. San Francisco is grappling with all manner of issues regarding all this, but the bug has caught on. Everyone wants to go everywhere whenever they want to, and they don't even need to buy a vehicle, unless, of course, you fancy a unicycle. But someone is probably working on that startup as I speak. I'm Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Carrie McClellan, a writer, filmmaker, lawyer, and rights advocate. We'll talk about the significant impact of technology on San Francisco. It may well be coming to your city, if it hasn't changed it already. Then on Tech Nation Health, a potential new treatment for Proteus Syndrome, best known to you from the movie The Elephant Man. It may also deliver benefits for endometrial cancer. We produce Tech Nation in San Francisco, home to Twitter, Uber, Lyft, Salesforce, and more. And we often reference Silicon Valley, the home of Google, Yahoo, Cisco, and Intel. Still, we've never actually said, geographically speaking, where are these two places? Are they one and the same? Carrie McClellan is the author of Silicon City, San Francisco in the Long Shadow of the Valley. Carrie, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you, Mara. Now, we produce Tech Nation in San Francisco, which is home to Twitter, Uber, Lyft, Salesforce, and others. Mm. And we often reference Silicon Valley, the home of Google, Yahoo, Cisco, Intel, and the list goes on. Still, we've actually never said, geographically speaking, where are these two places? And are they one and the same? Where Mm -hmm. are they? So paint that picture for our listeners around the world. Well, the San Francisco Bay, uh, there are about nine counties that touch it. Some people count 12 as part of the Bay Area. Um, San Francisco sits at the middle of it at the end of a peninsula and is, is a city, really a world unto itself. On three sides, it has water. And it's been the major shipping hub and major commercial hub for the West Coast since the gold rush. South of it was the Silicon Valley, which originally was orchards and farms. 
and became the home of the aerospace industry and the semiconductor industry, and which grew into what we now recognize as the sort of heart of the tech industry. Sort of and, 60 miles, 70 miles Exactly, south, south uh, of a long, on a long peninsula. At the end of the peninsula is San Jose, which rests at the bottom of the bay. And between San Jose and, and San Francisco now, there's a span of tech companies, you named almost all of them, the that, that are that are <laughs> that are the sort of titans of the industry, and there's been a move now into San Francisco that probably began in the early aughts, but really surged after the Great Recession, of sort of a new group of uh, tech designers and uh, the finance community that follows them, building new kinds of technologies in that were particularly attracted to living in a city particularly attracted to the dynamics of an urban life and decided to settle down here instead of what traditionally was an engineer class or a technical class that sort of settled down in Silicon Valley. So you have this, the story of the last particularly 15 years, but I'd say for the past, you know, uh, 10, has been a story of rapid new arrivals rent increases and evictions that have corresponded to it, displacement of, of communities, the black middle class, the whole wave of uh, communities who were originally uh, Latino immigrants from Latin America, whole waves of artists and activists who represented um, cultural movements from the 60s, 70s and beyond, 80s and 90s. Um, and so you see now a huge shift that's happened in a very short period of time around the culture of the city, the demographics of the city and the economics of the city, all of which um, has taken everybody by surprise and they are trying to find their way through redefining what it what does it mean to be in the community that is San Francisco and, and more broadly the Bay Area. And given that community, what responsibilities do we have to each other? And what do we want to preserve from the San Francisco that predated this? And what can't we? So in case you're thinking out there that we're just being self-indulgent because we're sitting here in San Francisco, this is a story of what happens with new technology, because the first people that any of these new apps, new technologies, new anything are tried on, it's us. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Let's go out the door, see what this person is mm -hmm. going to do right here. We adapt like mad. And so it could happen to you. It could already be happening to you. And it just may be the, the forefront has not hit you yet. Uh, so that this is a tale of San Francisco and the struggle that that we're going through here, but it's a tale that actually is fast becoming a global tale. And mm -hmm. I think that's important to recognize. Yeah, I think there are two forces that, that are particularly at play. And one of them is not technology. One of them is just widening wealth gaps in the American economy, rising evictions in the American economy, struggles around uh, affordable health care, struggles around public institutions like schools, um, municipal governments, et cetera, et cetera. There, there's been a uh, challenge city by city by city in America. These are American urban problems. And in the cities like New York, L.A., where maybe tech isn't the tip of the industrial spear, but there's finance or there's the entertainment industry, you still see these dynamics around gentrification and displacement. They just take a little bit slower based slightly on how large those cities are and some degrees to which those cities are better integrated um, municipally. Um, and then you see some of these dynamics emerging from, from tech itself in Seattle and Austin, for example, and Portland to a certain degree now. So this is, this is very much an American story. The tech itself, though, is, is also very much a driver. The tech is redefining what, what an American job means. Um, 
it's it's the gig economy is certainly part of it, but there's um, a degree to which people no longer have to be rooted in an office working. And so there are all kinds of questions about old ways we used to understand um, the boundaries of our work and home life that are completely redrawn, the safety net that's provided to a working life, um, the dignity that we think um, is supposed to be afforded by the state versus by the private sector. There's there's all kinds of complicated things that are being redrawn. The goal of the book is um, 150 interviews, probably a third of which made it into the book. These are portraits of people who represent an array of experiences in the middle of San Francisco right now whose lives are in complex ways mapped onto um, these problems. So you can see everybody from an Uber driver to a former longshoreman to a school teacher to various people inside the tech Venture community. Venture capitalists yeah. that fund a Ma- lot of this. Major leaders. Major, uh, th- there's some very prominent leaders in venture capital. There's some people who've, who've built um, defining technologies like the self-driving car um, who are um, speaking to everybody understands that there's a problem. Everybody in this book sort of recognizes that there's a huge change occurring. There are very different ideas about what the the solutions are and very different ideas about their own sense of responsibility over what they can change and what they can not. Um, now, this predates the, the sort of the time we're talking about, 2008 through 2018, the uh, 10 years that I've never seen such change mm-hmm. uh, in San mm-hmm. Francisco. And, and Prior to that, just to give you an idea of how a simple technology and a nice guy who was trying to get everybody help, you know, has put an entire industry out of business, and that would be Craig Newmark, mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. sat in a friend of mine's kitchen saying, you know, with this technology, I just like to put, you know, some things online mm-hmm. so that people could help each other yeah. so that, you know, let's say you didn't need your bed anymore and somebody could use it. They could just, you know, it could be free and, you know, and the... And and then they said, well, what do we charge for? And they said, well, the only thing we'll charge for is that if uh, if you want to put a personal in it to hire somebody, so that right. companies, you know, right. that was the only thing they charged for. Well, before you knew it, you didn't need a newspaper. Right. And newspaper ad revenues in newspapers is what drove and supported newspapers around the world. Mm-hmm. And so this nice person who wanted to, to do something to help people with the technology available ended up bringing down a whole industry. It's like it can happen very fast. I agree. One of the things that, that's captured in some of the interviews in the books is that that text roots, particularly the, the consumer version of it that we experience today, um, had its roots in the hippie culture, psychedelics, uh, and all kinds of um, new age theories about communication. The the goal of it was to connect a world, break down barriers, um, make make cheap cheap to free um, all kinds of uh, gating technologies that had had divided people in, in along class lines prior to it. And, and liberate a world that had was was radically at that time looking like it was heading towards nuclear annihilation. Um, there were all kinds of notions that that the technology was the solution. And Craig Newmark, um, you know, the guys who founded Wikipedia, the guys who founded EFF, um, any number of people are are representing um, a point of view around um, technology that maybe today is is um, more difficult to see. Well, industry. whether it's the electronic. Frontier Foundation, Wikipedia with 
together we can create the information of the world mm-hmm. and make it trustworthy by having everyone having their hands in it or, or just trying to be nice to each other and help each other uh, rent apartments and uh, mm-hmm. trade stuff over the Internet. Um, all of these things weren't just technology. Every one of those were always related to humanity mm-hmm. or to society. Yeah. And society had to change our definitions of it, our rethinking responsibilities of it, simply because, you know, we couldn't say, well, the the founders of the Constitution imagined. It's like they never imagined Mm -hmm. this stuff. (laughs) They didn't Mm -hmm. imagine what this was about. And I think this is a struggle for all these people. um, And none of them were out to make money. Yes. One of the problems is... There are many things we could say about technology and how it's changed over the years. One, one is that the the role of many of these country and companies has just expanded beyond what was previously imagined, particularly in terms of information and communications, and that has situated them um, more in the center of. Uh, managing conversations, national conversations, international conversations than they expected. And the the benign attitude that the technology itself was liberating and a sort of uncritical perspective on human nature and how that would map onto it, it has has led to a series of stumbling blocks. The book captures some of these, but we're, we're dealing with many of them today in terms of our attempts to sort of understand the role of Facebook and Twitter in the elections. I dealt with these earlier in my career, actually, when, when I was working for a human rights organization that was commissioned by Google to, to investigate um, how YouTube uh, handled the uh, wave of citizen videos coming out of the Arab Spring. These were videos of protests, videos of human rights abuses. And there was a real challenge initially. Initially, the instinct of the company was to sort of let this information flow free and quickly they realized that these these images were traumatizing to many people these images were um, being co-opted by foreign governments to um, identify protesters and identify people who were in resistance to the government there were spoof videos put up by opposition groups and sometimes by governments themselves to be able to to try to de- demobilize sort of momentum of op- of opposition and resistance so there's they there, became journalists mm-hmm. they at had, that point and they, yeah yeah and there are complicated questions around whether these companies are ready to govern what what is a huge ungoverned um, electronic community that they've created and that that these the, the conversations we're seeing in Congress around this are, are essentially a, a, a discussion between two bodies that aren't quite ready to regulate um, electronic communication yet uh, two body neither Facebook's ready to nor Twitter nor is Congress ready to and poised to and so in the absence of that we're all sort of floating and in a society that's changing radically but changing without any real um, guideposts on it. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Kerry McClellan. He's a writer, filmmaker, lawyer, and rights advocate, and he's here today with his book, Silicon City, San Francisco in the Long Shadow of the Valley. You mentioned it earlier. One of the people you talked to was a taxi driver. There are taxi drivers, and there are Uber and Lyft drivers. Mm -hmm. What's happened there? Yeah, I think... It, it's an easy industry to look at in terms of, of wider changes that are happening in, in the idea of work and the idea of um, regulated spaces um, and regulated um, industries. Uh, the taxi driver in the story is actually sort of a remarkable man. He's a, a guy named Paul Gillespie who was a 
In addition to just being a, a day-to-day cab driver for 40 years in, in San Francisco, living in Dolores Park, um, but he uh, he was also the head of the taxi commission, and during that time, drafted the law that transitioned the cab fleet in San Francisco from being non-hybrid uh, vehicles to being a fully green fleet. And that transition meant that San Francisco was able to meet its Kyoto Accord um, protocol goals. Um, that's an incredible reduction. I think it was about a 40% reduction in emissions. How San uh, Francisco of us. I know. How San Francisco <laughs> of you. Uh, I, I think it was passed during G- G- Gavin Newsom's um, uh, tenure, as, tenure mayor. as mayor. Yeah. The challenge uh, for him has been after that, Uber comes along. Um, and the popularity, the, the cab system here has always been uh, a mixed bag and and probably insufficient to provide the the needs, transportation needs for all the people that were here. The more professionals come to the city, the greater they feel that they sort of need individual transport around the city and mass transit doesn't suit them. Uber becomes hugely popular. You, you have thousands of vehicles that are are put onto San Francisco streets that very few of which are, are necessarily hybrid all of which increase the emissions of the city. And so this huge green move that San Francisco took that put it in this leadership position in the city gets rolled back um, because of this advance in technology. Alongside that, there's an Uber driver in the book who's an immigrant who comes to the community. He's actually a computer science student in his home country and then arrives here. Hoping to get a job in technology doesn't. does a series of op jobs until Uber comes along and is then one of the first Uber drivers. And his description of Uber is, is is of a sort of Hobbesian world where he's constantly chasing um, the marginal prices, um, uh, constantly chasing just making a profit, but having to cover his own expenses, cover his own insurance, cover repair of his own vehicle. Um, he barely gets by. Um, he has sl- slightly developed a, a, a couple of cars himself that he can run and feels like he's eked out a little corner for himself. But it does feel uh, no, very little different from... Uh, the country in Africa he came from, where there was corruption and where he, where the economy itself was very difficult. He feels like he's traded one life for another. That that's very similar. Again, I don't think either of these people, the, I, both of these people, are rather unique cases. These are these are people born of their own dreams and their own aspirations. Paul's Paul's a man who always had an interest in urban planning and um, environmental policy, and he brought that to his work in the taxi commission. Um, Leo Fikiri, the Uber driver, is a man whose particular the particular contours of his experience and his education gives him a particular frustrated feeling at not being able to participate in technology and not being able to, partic- to participate in the upside of it, being part of the working class. Um, but what I think you see there is is in in a industry like the taxi cabs, which is for a long time there were. Um, worker protections, there were benefits, there were rules around um, cabs that meant that they had to be able to take disabled persons around the city. All of those vanish the minute Uber comes along and represents itself as a not a cab company, not not a limousine company, but some kind of intermediary between consumers and individual drivers. And the individual drivers themselves are now absent any of the benefits, any of the insurance protections, or any of the uh, marginal protections that a business at scale can manage. A a cab company can deal with 18 cabs, a few of which have to deal with repairs, most of which can be on the road. An individual who has their car breakdown um, and relies on Uber uh, for their complete subsistence suddenly is out of work for a month while they wait for their car to be repaired. And and here's the point. It doesn't work, it appears, if this is your full-time job. 
Right. It just doesn't work. But it works very well for people for whom it is a part-time, a flexible part-time job. I'll give you two instances. Please, please. One is... Uh, there was a gal that picked me up one day, and she was young, and I don't. I always ask the drivers, what do they do, and where mm-hmm. do they come from, and all mm-hmm. this. I do my own little research. And this one struck me because she said, oh, I have two little girls, yeah. and I I drop them both at their two little schools, and the last one is uh, I drop off at 830, yeah. and I drive from then until 245, where I pick the other mm-hmm. one up, and that's what I do, and Every every minute in there, I'm making money, you know, and she but this she has other support. But this and she says, if one of my girls is sick, I Mm -hmm. stay home. Mm -hmm. If, you know, Mm -hmm. something goes on, I might drive a weekend Mm -hmm. to try to, you know, to, Mm -hmm. to get ahead. I can get ahead. She said, I have no other flexible way of adding to my income than this. You know, and she had a very modest car and she was just driving it around. On the other end of the spectrum, I have to get to the San Francisco airport pretty early in the morning, and so I'm like, okay, let's call, you know, one of the one of the uh, one of the apps. Um, and you don't call anymore. I know that's I have to say that on air. You know, I brought up brought up Lyft, I think it was, and the uh, uh, and this guy shows up, and I'm thinking, you know, it's pretty you know, looks pretty squared away the, and I said you know you're the best dressed mm-hmm. Lyft driver I've ever seen and he reaches over and he has in the passenger seat a tie and he just drops it and I went and I realized the guy's dressed for downtown he's got a you know, very nice dress shirt yeah. and everything and he goes I'm an accountant I've worked the numbers he goes I drive downtown, I turn it on when I get there, and normally I'm driving somebody downtown, and uh, and you're going to the airport, bonus. He said, I may pick, I, I wait five minutes there, I may pick somebody else and bring them back into the city. And he goes, and then I park all day, it pays for my parking, and then I get off work, and I'm like, well, where do I want to go now, and how long do I want? He goes, I'm an accountant, I'm telling you, this works for me, because this adds on to what I can do. So... There are ways in which it can work, but what it can't do, and I'll give a third example, mm-hmm. is be a full-time job. There are any number of these people mm-hmm. that I know, they dr- I find they've driven in from you know, 100, 200 miles away because this is the urban area in exactly. which such a company could work, whereas where they live, there aren't enough cars and people to make such a thing work. So figuring out what it does, no, it doesn't replace the old ones, but... You know, there was always a struggle in San Francisco. How many medallions would it would they let mm-hmm. out? And they were never enough. And you never have calls. And you people driving their cars when they shouldn't. And now a lot of the people, the young people who live here don't even own cars. That's right. And so, well, that's a good thing. You know, so it's mm-hmm. like, okay, these are changes to see. And let me ask you another thing. We've never had before, it's the last 10 years, all these people have always worked in Silicon Valley. But to have companies, and we always call them Google buses, mm-hmm. but that's unfair. Mm-hmm. It's Yahoo and everybody mm-hmm. else. They get on the buses, beautiful buses. You can't talk, but you could. they've got Wi-Fi. You can listen to things. You can work on your computer. You yeah. can do all this. And they drive because people, the young people want to live here. Yes. This completely drove up the rents. But they want to live here. They, they want to live here, and they want to live here in a region. But they want to work for companies that are in the peninsula. Yes. And they want to do that in a region where there isn't, frankly, the mass transit system or the highway infrastructure for them to be able to compute independ- uh, commute independently. 
And so the buses represent the private sector investing in the comfort and security and convenience of its employees, while the public sector can't do the same for everybody else. Carrie McClellan is the author of Silicon City, San Francisco in the Long Shadow of the Valley. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show on Tech Nation Health, a potential first-ever treatment for Proteus Syndrome, which you would know from the movie The Elephant Man. It may also help with endometrial cancer. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Carrie McClellan, the author of Silicon City, San Francisco in the Long Shadow of the Valley. We had been talking about the private corporate buses for Silicon Valley employees, enabling them to live in the city. What's happening is there's a wave of reasonably well paid, talented, and educated tech workers. These are predominantly white men for the most part, though the industry has has been increasingly trying to grapple with the demographic problems of that. Arriving to San Francisco for jobs that are created anew for San Francisco but aren't going to San Franciscans, and the San Franciscans themselves can no longer afford to live in the city as rents drive up. They, as a result, many people, often in whole families, are relocating to Antioch, Relocating to Gilroy, relocating to Tracy. And for these pe- are, these are two hours, miles away. These are often two plus hours away commutes. Uh, particularly in rush hour, would be a significant burden on on anybody commuting into the city. They still work the same job. They're still a bus driver, or they still are a service worker at a, a tech company, or they are you know do X number of jobs on the Stanford campus, or um, any number of other things that we could imagine. These are people who may work municipal jobs in the city. Um, there are many school teachers who are. Um, traveling that distance, that population is now subjected to um, what what is a, a fairly cruel burden of a, a commute. These are hours they're not with their home, not with their children, not 
doing any number of things that other people are doing when they live closer to their jobs. And a lot of that is just merely because the Bay Area suffers from an infrastructure problem, suffers from a mass transit problem, suffers from an ability to web its nine counties together. And that's just it. There there are a number of counties. Mm -hmm. And so to solve anything, you're going to county to county to county mm -hmm. to all work together that have no easy way of doing that. Yeah, try to do that around water rights. The, 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 there are agreements around water rights that have to be developed here, around highway maintenance, around... Um, any, around power, around um, environmental protection, all of these things have to be coordinated amongst nine counties fairly according to, to the negotiations that occur amongst each municipal body. That's a huge challenge. And the reason we see um, some of these dynamics more slowly in cities like New York where the five boroughs are, are under one municipality – um, it's easier for the five boroughs to invest quickly in mass transit solutions. It's easy for the five boroughs to manage a single budget. It's easier for individuals who are moved from Manhattan to Brooklyn, as difficult as that may be for a family that suddenly has a longer commute and, and no less painful potentially, they're still voting in the same city. They're still, they still have representation at the same municipal board. The book again. We're the these are all the themes that are in the shadow of um, individual stories in this book that help us see why these questions matter. So, at at what one good story I think in in reflection of this is is a young man named Tony Sagrado who's a juvenile justice advocate, and he moves to San Francisco at a time, moves about 10 years ago at a time when, when that was affordable, becomes um, an expert in his field, becomes one of recognized by uh, Jerry Brown and Eric Holder as a leader in juvenile justice because he's able to see how this mesh of issues map onto a child's life and make it difficult for them to uh, observe pro uh, probation regulations, go to school, do any of the number of things that keep them out of prison once they've been arrested. Um, one good example is he he had a, a stu uh, one of his uh, clients, uh, a young woman was had had a terrible school attendance record, had never gone to school, had um, got a small drug violation that turned into a second. When they looked at her case and took her back to school, they realized she had a learning disability. Once they corrected the learning disability, she was back in the right classes. She went to school with full attendance. She graduated fully. Her her judge, prosecutor, and public defender, include and Tony, were all there at her graduation. Um, sometimes it's these small changes that we don't know how to observe uh, properly. He is somebody who is like genuinely an antibody in San Francisco. He's somebody who in in a series of immeasurable ways, non-monetary ways, we've invested in him. We've invested in him to be an expert in an area and to stand at a particular gate of troubles and, and protect the city in a way. Um, he, what happens to him is his daughter gets sick. He has to take a job at night. The job he takes at night is to be a prison, in juvenile pri a prison guard in juvenile prisons. And so at night, to be able to afford to live in the city still, at night he is undoing the work that he used to do during the day. <laughs> that's that's quite that stitch it up during the day take the stitches out at night exactly. do it again tomorrow and he's just hoping he takes five steps forward um so that if he takes four steps back at night um he's at least moved moved one step forward if i look at the national headlines i see two things how can this be how can this be most expensive place to live in the united states most expensive place to live in the world we hear mm -hmm. and then the homeless problem just yesterday i i was reading that we won the most 
human, uh, this is indelicate, uh, output on the mm. street. We don't really know what to do about all this. I, I don't know that we know what what a viable solution looks like yet. I don't know that we've tried, though. Um, I don't know that we've spent the money or invested at the scale that is necessary given the scope of the problem. Um, other than L.A., the San Francisco, there's nothing like this homeless problem in New York. And some of that's because New York is a, uh, a pragmatic place that had a very difficult mayor once upon a time. And, and we, a very cold winter. Yeah, very cold winter. And, and there are policies in New York that, that, that I, I wouldn't celebrate as ways we dealt with the homeless problem. But the, the, what you're seeing in terms of – they're very promising signs. Prop C, Mark Benioff's getting behind it. Um, He's the founder and CEO of, of Salesforce. Salesforce. But I also think there are stories in the book that sort of point to um, the fact that we just really haven't emotionally committed to uh, the act of empathy and understanding and being there for the homeless population. And there's a, a number of people who either were homeless themselves, um, were on the streets as kids, um, or uh, serve homeless youth who really speak to the need for a kind of unconditional commitment to resolving the problem and being there for um, those who can be be helped uh, and those who may continue to need help. Um, there are there are genuinely people in San Francisco who have dual diagnosis problems, and that means they have uh, a problem with drugs or drug addiction and they, or substance abuse of some kind, and they have a mental health issue. And that's a very hard cocktail to unravel um, for anyone. Uh, and that's a very common term that people understand here. Mm -hmm. You know, San Francisco has always been a place that is known for its very original people and mm -hmm. tolerance mm -hmm. and creativity and all of these kinds of things. Um, and I think the people who live here today are no different. What I'm very impressed with, with all the, the people who get off the buses that are coming up from the peninsula mm -hmm. or have flocked here to work at these social media giants, there's a goodness about them. They don't say, I'm here to make a huge amount of money or a killing. They have a real sense of society. Mm -hmm. They have a real sense of the impact of their technology. That's at least what they're talking about. And their, their idea of what society is and should do is, is very real. Mm -hmm. And yet they're drawing salaries that most of the people who live here, have lived here, couldn't even mm -hmm. begin to approach. I agree. I mean, very there's, difficult. There's a number of voices in the book, and uh, and there's in particular Saad Khan, who's a young venture capitalist who sort of celebrates the the culture he's seen amongst particularly the youngest people coming into the industry who have a real commitment to um, using technology for good, building new companies that have cultures that radiate outwards, um, tackling real social problems. Um, there are other voices in the book who are who are also young and and very accomplished um, visionary technologists who, frankly, because of the size of their company or because of um, the dynamics in the city, find it very hard to, in a day to day way, develop a visceral feelings, touching, tasting sense of what the problems in the city are, and so it's very hard for them to innovate towards it. Um, there's also, I think, a, a third category of problems, which which are sort of married across the old culture and the new culture of the city, which is whether it's articulated as a, a an endorsement of sort of like human freedom or whether it's a libertarian sensibility that the government shouldn't intervene in people's lives. Um, many people are very hands off about um, crossing boundaries. And Welcome and, to San Francisco. Exactly, exactly. You know, it's like people think, well, they're all, they're all crazy there. It's like, no, there's a tremendous number of 
very conservative, very recognizable people mm-hmm. in the American profile. Mm-hmm. The difference is, is I'm not going to bother you and you're not going to bother me. Exactly. <laughs> and that is sort of almost a theme song that you live here, you like it. This is really, this is really good. But I think as a result, across the, the tens of people in this book, uh, dozens of people in this book, there's one of the things everybody's yearning for is a common space of discussion, a common space of agreement, a common place where they can come together and build towards common solutions. Because each of these people, whether they're defining their community as their family or or their neighborhood or an ethnic community or a cultural movement or a tech company... Um, or and I'll tell all, you, all they're, the, but they're that they're looking at it very different ways. If I look at the baby boomers, mm-hmm. they're phenomenal in that they're saying, you know, the way we have it structured, mm-hmm. my property taxes are fixed, mm-hmm. and so that was a California state thing from years ago. It's like so, it's not going to go out. That used to drive retired people out. Right. I can stay here. They're saying things like. Uh, the car I own is going to be the last car I ever own mm. because after this, it's Uber, Lyft, it's ride share, mm-hmm. it's you know even Hertz rent a car. Right. It's like all of a sudden, it's like they're looking at these technologies as enabling a way of life for their future that they themselves never envisioned. And pretty soon we'll have the the, the car industries worldwide going. You know, this is not fair. Right. But just <laughs> Silicon as we, Valley put us right. out of business. But just as we see many of the workplace protections going away, those rules apply to sort of one generation only and not the younger generation. That's right. A lot of them have been sort of grandfathered out. So as a result, uh, you there, let's empathize with a young tech worker for a minute. The, the real estate market keeps raising prices to consume their income. Each each step up, it's more and more of a challenge for somebody who even has a good income to keep their apartment, stay there, a young family who has to commute two hours um, down to the peninsula and back, um, who's fighting to uh, get their kids into certain schools, who feels like they're defending. It's, it, I, I think these questions around school choice are very complicated, but that family is scrambling and barely has a moment to breathe themselves. So everywhere in the city, uh, and, particularly and young people, uh, counties. Out, everybody's running. Everybody's on the running. hamster wheel. And nobody – it's very hard for people to get the breath and perspective to be right. able to make empathetic choices about others, invest in the community, and be as civic and volunteering as, as we would hope to be. And that that's the hope is the book can actually provide some of that. I was about to say the good thing about the book is that you can be empathetic – for that which you see, that which you stand next to, that which you understand. And yet all of us live in some bubble, some right. set of bubble. Right. It doesn't matter who you are, at what end of, of socioeconomic or, or any kind of, or, or geographic sphere you're at. And I think that's one of the things that, that is really interesting for me about the book is that it's, it is, uh, it's incorrect to call it a pastiche. I mean, it. I really felt that I heard heard a broad spectrum of what was going on in San Francisco. It wasn't people weren't talked to to make an argument. People were spoken to to give us enlightenment about who they were, what they were. The venture capitalist was as important as the cafeteria mm-hmm. worker, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like all of these people, and this has to settle down into a working society. And right now, it's not working. It's a, a, the the goal of a book like this, and Studs Terkel was the real master of oral history work like this. 
is what what you do is you the reader now is spoken to directly by each person. My voice is out of it. The questions are out of it. It's it's sort of a first person story or monologue delivered directly to the reader, and it's absent all the indicators of a photograph or um, an image or a video that comes with other documentary work that I used to do. This is everybody's words on a page. Everybody's equal to one another. Everybody's approximately the same length in the book. Some are longer and shorter, of course, but but none are are trying to be less whole. Um, and so a friend of mine, uh, actually somebody in the book who uh, uh, read it recently, um, uh, who read their part for, for the first time and, and also read the entire book, came back and said, Carrie, th- it feels like a party um, of everybody in San Francisco I didn't know and was so glad to meet. You know, uh, I find that people in the book are able to get to a place of real philosophical and poetic reflection where sometimes I'm just knocked over by what, um, after a couple hours of sitting with somebody in their living room and talking to them, where they arrive at uh, their perspective of this region. And and all of it's with, for the most part, a fair amount of good humor, empathy towards one another, um, and reflection um, about their own situation and what they can do better. A uh, tale for everyone. It's up. But right now, we're trying to work it out here. (laughs) Carrie, such a pleasure. I hope you come back to see us again. My pleasure, Maura. Thank you for having me. My guest today is Carrie McClellan. His book is Silicon City, San Francisco in the Long Shadow of the Valley. It's published by W.W. Norton. I'm Maura Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Welcome to Tech Nation Health, reimagining the future of health and healthcare with the emergence of new technologies and breakthrough science. Today on Tech Nation Health, finally, a potential treatment for Proteus syndrome, which you may know from the movie The Elephant Man. It may also have related benefits in the treatment of endometrial cancer. I asked Dr. Brian Schwartz, the chief medical officer of Arcule, to remind us what is Proteus syndrome? Proteus syndrome is one of a family of syndromes of what we call overgrowth diseases. And unfortunately, what this is for these people is little nests of cells that in while the, the embryo is developing, pick up a specific mutation. As the person grows, those little nests of cells start to grow in an uncontrolled manner. So what Proteus syndrome ends up being is areas in the body, normally the skin, muscle, fat, bone, or the brain that grows uncontrolled. So as you saw in the movie, some of these patients will have one very long arm, one big mass on one side of their body, or on their digits, or on their feet. So it's, it's very sporadic, and it occurs in different areas. The difficulty with this disease is almost everybody is different because the area where you have the cells are different in most patients. The disease itself, normally when kids are young, They are born normal. And as they grow, so these areas with diseased cells start growing uncontrollably. So they end up with these big overgrowths. Unfortunately, there's no treatment until they discovered, and what we're trying is the first ever medical intervention with a drug for this disease, 
The only way they could treat this disease was through surgery to remove these big growths or to chop out pieces of bone that had grown uncontrollably or to stunt the growth of bone. So there's no real treatment for these very, very unfortunate people. So they were disfigured and then they were further disfigured trying to remove them from the body. 100% correct. You know, meeting some of these patients, it's, it's been an amazing experience for me. You know, someone living with this type of disease, once it gets diagnosed, they never know how big or how fast or how quick these areas are going to grow. It is also life-threatening. So about 25% of patients with this disease, unfortunately, will pass away before they get to the end of adulthood. And the disease grows most rapidly while they're young and slows down at around 18. The other part about the disease, which has been a really interesting experience for me, has been our interactions with the NIH group. Professor Beisiger at the NIH is the person who discovered that this disease is caused by a specific mutation called the mutation of AKT, and it even has a specific, just one Base pair change. One little one thing little and base the three pair. billion pairs. One, one little, little change. And unfortunately, that's what causes the disease. It's very rare, fortunately for the world, but unfortunately for the people that are afflicted. We know of about 60 people in the U.S. that go to the NIH, and we estimate there's a couple hundred in the world. That's the extent of this disease. So very rare. The story from Arcule's side is as soon as Dr. Bicica discovered that it's an AKT mutation, we had been developing an AKT inhibitor, which would potentially stop the signaling of the cells for cancer because that same gene has been found to be an oncogene in certain cancers. Now, what well, makes the cells keep growing is called a tumor. <laughs> You're correct. Very correct. And also, what's interesting is a reasonably large proportion of these proteus cancer patients also de- uh, develop cancers at a young age. So, we actually, our personal experience with the two together is around a very special patient we've treated in Italy who had both proteus and uh, ovarian cancer. Oh, my goodness. And she has been treated now for a year and responded really nicely in both her cancer as well as her proteus disease. She had a very severe form of disease. She was basically chair-bound, unable to lie flat, needed two people to transfer her across because of her disfigurement. And being on the drug now for a year, she's able to move herself across, able to lie flat. And her uh, ovarian cancer, which was untreatable at the time, has now gone into remission. The problem or the challenge we have with the NIH in getting this drug um, to patients is that if you inhibit AKT in a young patient, you'd also inhibit their growth. So it's a balance between giving a little bit of the drug while they're growing so that you can prevent these overgrowths 
and not giving too much to prevent the patient from growing or side effects. So that's been our challenge. We were lucky in, doc, in that Dr. Bicek at the NIH, who's the, the world expert in this area, he did a few things. He took cells from patients, exposed them, grew them up in a dish, exposed them to the drug, and found at what concentration of our drug the cells stopped growing at a highly prolific rate and stopped signaling we took that information and we did a study in patients. So what he did was we took the low dose and we took biopsies or little pieces of the affected areas before treatment and then on treatment. And we found that we got the same degree or the same changes we saw in the lab we saw in these patients. And now the next step for us is to do a clinical trial together with agreement from regular regulatory agencies and everybody to try and get this drug approved so that patients can potentially use it. And there has been no other drug. There's never been a drug tested. This is the first trial. We have lots of challenges. Nobody has ever, as no one has ever done a trial like this before. There's no path forward. So we will have to work very closely with the NIH and all the agencies to make sure that we fulfill or go down a path that could potentially lead to approval. The other thing we've learned, which has been nice, is if you look at the signaling in these overgrowth diseases, it, Proteus is the extreme example. You can also get other mutations that cause a similar type of phenotype. So we got a disease called PROS, which is a mutation in uh, PR3K, which is one upstream from AKT. And we found we also work in a subset of those. And then there could be other mutations downstream where other people are trying other drugs. So it's interesting and in opening up new avenues for these rare diseases. Now, going back a little bit, it's actually quite interesting. These mutations, if it's in every cell in the uh, embryo, the embryo can't survive. It can't grow. It can't survive. So what happens is it's just rare. It's a, not a germline mutation in all the cells. It's just a mutation in a small number of cells, and it's a somatic mutation. It's something that causes that mutation to occur. So it's a group of overgrowth of, we call it overgrowth diseases, but they all have this mosaic. We call it mosaic because it's patchy, like mosaic, and sporadic because it's in little areas. So it's a group of diseases that we can hope we can tackle, bring more awareness to. The other thing that I, that, that I really appreciate being here on NPR is that for a lot of patients with these rare diseases, when there's no therapy, the doctors and the patients don't know what to do. They, you know, they, they told they have this disease. There's nothing we can do. They send them home. Awareness of this disease, I'm sure, will bring out many more patients who may have been given that diagnosis. So hopefully bringing an awareness to this type of or these group of syndromes will bring patients, give them hope, and hopefully we'll be able to help them should these next set of trials turn out positive. 
Are you still working on the cancer part of this? Cancer part is also interesting. So the cancer part, definitely. Cancer cells differ from these fibroblasts because cancer cells often have multiple mutations and they have, they have a propensity to change, whereas the fibroblasts in the rare diseases don't. So the, the rare disease is much purer. Cancer is much more complex. In cancer, we've tested this drug but we found we had to give much higher doses than we have given in the overgrowth diseases. So we've given 12, 14 times more drug to patients in cancer. And we have found that patients with certain of these mutations have responded. And the problem is the toxicity or the side effects of the drug at the higher doses have limited it. A little bit. So what we decided to do is to look, and the first good signal we got was in endometrial or uterine type of uterine cancer. So we've seen a very nice signal in that disease, but we felt it may be too toxic for for the patients. So we combined it with a hormonal therapy, and we just reported at a medical conference two months ago some very interesting data in a small number of patients where we had good responses in endometrial cancer with the, with this agent in um, in combination with hormonal therapy. So that we will be pursuing as well. And endometrial is always about overgrowth. Correct. It's 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 often hormonally driven. And uh, it's a very at large the moment, masses, large, large masses. masses. Yeah. At the moment, it's a relatively underserviced cancers. We were just at the cancer meeting a few days ago, and a lot of tumors have now 10, 12, 15 drugs. Endometrial cancer is now treated the same way as it was 10, 15 years ago. Nothing really has changed. So we hope that this new personalized medicine approach, looking for the mutation, treating it with a specific drug, as well as immunotherapy and other therapies will give patients with endometrial cancer a lot more hope. Well, this has been terrific. Uh, Brian, I hope you'll come back. Keep us updated. Thank you very much. Dr. Brian Schwartz is the chief medical officer of Arcul. More information is available at arcul.com. That's A-R-Q-U-L-E. Arcule.com. For Tech Nation Health, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotechnation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.